0: This morning's Bible reading comes from the ES version, which is the English Standard Version, and it's called The Triumphal Entry. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them cloaks and he sat on them most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut cut branches from trees and spread them on the road and the crowd that went before him and that followed him were shouting Hosanna to the son of David Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirring up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee.
1: Okay. Well, guys, how about we we pray before we start? Father, we come before you, before a holy God, and we are people that are called by your name. Father, we are going to open your word now. Father, I pray that you will use my words and my meditations to bless your people. Father, I pray you open their hearts to receive the good portion that you have for them. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, Um, what I want to do, because I'm uh, preaching for three weeks, um, you can see up on the screen, uh, there's three pictures. A bit dull, it's okay. Um, and, And they kind of represent the three sermons that we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks. Today we're looking at the triumphal entry, verses 1 to 11. Uh, Next week, we're looking at uh, the cleansing of the temple, verses 12 to 17. just a short passage. And we're finishing with uh, quite a large swathe of Scripture, verses 18 through to 46, which is about fruit bearing and Jesus' judgment on the Pharisees for their lack of fruit bearing. A sombre topic, and we're going to cover that in the final week. What I want to encourage you to do as we go through this is to get into the text yourself, in your private devotions, in your home groups, uh, with your wives and husbands and so on. Get into the text. Share the insights that you're getting from God when he illuminates the text by the Spirit. Share that with others. Share it with me, if you like, that we all might be built up and see new things. I haven't got to the end of looking at Matthew 21, and I've been in it for probably 18 months, and I just find new nuggets of gold there which are worthy to be shared. There's things that I can't share today because I just haven't got enough time. There's a whole section I was so excited about sharing. I told Sue yesterday, that I, I can't share it. I haven't got time to share it, but I'm going to give it to you as homework. No. <laughs> Back in school. Next. Now are we? Ah, no. What I want to do today, talking about the triumphal entry, is first of all, paint a picture. What was happening as Jesus was coming in on a donkey? If you like, I want to transport us back to that time. Get in the TARDIS. Go back to that time and imagine what it would have been like to be sitting in the crowd. What were their expectations? What What would it have felt like to have been there? Then we're going to ask some questions. One of the questions comes directly out of the text and some other questions just beg to be asked. And then we're going to worship. We're going to get John back up in the team and we're just going to worship the Lord for all that he's done for us. And then we'll have communion. Well, we're in Matthew 21. There's been 20 chapters of Matthew before this, which have recounted the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. The three and a half years Jesus has walked this earth. He's restored broken people. He's cleansed lepers, he's cast out demons, he's spoken with authority, he's given the greatest moral teaching our world has ever heard. He's walked on water, he's calmed the storm with his words and his disciples are even more freaked out after the storm had been calmed. What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? He's fed 5,000 men plus women and children with a basket full of bread and fish. just incredible thing. Restored people that were broken, broken morally. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He's pushed back against hypocrisy, spoken words of life. And here we are in Matthew 21. We're approaching the end of his earthly ministry. Someone looking on might be tempted to say, this is where it goes pear-shaped. This is where things start to go wrong. For in less than a week, he's going to be betrayed by one of his disciples. Another disciple, a key disciple, is going to deny him. They're going to flee from him. He's going to be handed over to a court on trumped-up charges. He's going to be scourged and mocked and crucified. Is this where it all goes wrong? We shall see. The time of the year is the Passover. In Jerusalem, there were probably 80,000 people that lived there permanently. But during major festivals in Israel, people would flock to Jerusalem. It was something that was commanded if you can get there for the festival, you should. So the numbers in Jerusalem, approximately, would be two and a half million people. We don't think that. We look at documentaries about the life of Jesus, and there's a cast of hundreds in the crowd. There were scores of people there. There were hundreds of thousands of people around the the place as Jesus entered Jerusalem. Take a moment. Hmm. Not only that, but during the time of the Passover, there was renewed hope that maybe this year the Messiah would be revealed, the Chosen One the anointed one, the coming king. Maybe this year that would happen. Then the verse 1. Working? Yeah. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. This village Bethphage was just out of Jerusalem, and it was near Bethany. Bethany is a location where only just recently... Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. A major miracle. Lazarus had been dead four days and he resurrected him. And in John chapter 12, it says that the people that had gathered that day, as Jesus came in on the donkey, gathered because of that miracle. Because the people that witnessed that miracle were going around and telling everybody, you wouldn't believe what happened. This Jesus resurrected someone who was dead meat four days in the tomb. And he resurrected him They're telling everybody. And people are gathering. In Mark chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus healed a guy with leprosy. And and Jesus said to him, don't tell anybody. But he did. He went out and told people. And crowds kept on gathering. Jesus couldn't even enter the cities because of the amount of crowds that were coming from every quarter, it says in Mark chapter 1. That's the beginning of the gospel. Can you imagine the crowds that were there coming into Jerusalem after doing a major miracle? Something to consider. Now when they drew... We'll just start from the top again. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So Jesus sends two disciples, they bring back the donkey in a colt, they lay their cloaks over the donkey, and Jesus proceeds into Jerusalem on the donkey. And this is what Scripture tells us. This took place, this riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold your king, Is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. They already had ramped up expectations around the Passover and the possible revealing of the Messiah. They already knew these incredible things that Jesus was doing. And lo and behold, here comes Jesus on a donkey. Some of them at least would have known the scripture and would have been talking about it. Ramping up expectations even more. Then verse 8, uh, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Two things there, there's laying cloaks down on the road for the donkey to walk on, unusual sort of practice, and then the palm branches. Firstly, the cloaks. Back in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, there's a guy who's anointed king. And when it's proclaimed, there's trumpets, And the fellows that are around about him lay their cloaks down and Jehu stands on top of the cloaks. It's a symbol of submission. It's a symbol that that those around him say, we acknowledge that you are king. We acknowledge that you are the one with this anointing for king of Israel. And so as people lay their cloaks down in the street, they are saying, we're acknowledging your kingship. We're coming under your kingship. Powerful image. Secondly, the palm branches. The palm branches is something of a national symbol in Israel. They they featured in Solomon's temple, in the carvings and so on. They featured in Ezekiel about the future temple. There's lots of references to palm branches. One particular thing that happened in 167 BC there was a Greek king called Antiochus IV Epiphanes. I don't know who named him, what was his parents thinking? He captured Jerusalem and he wanted to make Greek culture spread throughout the known world. So this guy, Antiochus, goes into God's holy temple with a pig. And a pig is an unclean animal in Judaism. And he sacrifices his pig on God's holy altar to Zeus, a pagan god. As a result of that, a guy called Judas Maccabees raises a revolution raises a band of followers, and they kick Antiochus out of Jerusalem. They restore orthodox praise into the temple, orthodox Judaism back into the temple, orthodox worship. They sing praises to God and they wave palm branches around. Significant. Here are the people, as Jesus is coming in on a donkey, laying down palm branches, waving palm branches around. Here comes the Deliverer. Here comes a guy who's going to kick out the Romans. Here comes a guy who's going to restore Israel, restore the kingdom. A quote from the NIV Commentary says, There is no mistaking that he, Jesus, proceeds into Jerusalem as the anticipated king. The Messianic, which means Messiah, the Anointed One, the messianic son of David. I'll read it again. There is no mistaking that Jesus proceeds into Jerusalem as the anticipated king, the messianic son of David. Now, the ideas of what that king would achieve vary greatly from what was in the mind of God, as we shall see. So that's the end of me painting a picture. You've got a swollen crowd. You've got lots of people there. You've got... Increased expectations around this Jesus coming in. You've got them acknowledging him as king. You've got people who are eyewitnesses. You've got people in the crowd who have just been healed by him, actually. In Matthew 20, there's two blind men who are calling out to him as he's coming from Jericho to Jerusalem. And they're calling out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And he heals both of them and they follow him. So there's people in the crowd who have experienced his power and there's people in the crowd who have witnessed his power and there's Roman soldiers who are freaking out because of his power wondering what's going to happen next and a Jewish leadership who are concerned about him as well. A whole mix of people. Let's go down to verse 10 and 11. The last part of the reading today. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city... Was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. People were asking the question back then, Who is this? And people are still asking that question today. And there's a whole range of different opinions about the person of Jesus. He was a revolutionary, he was just a hippie, he talked about love, he was just a prophet. He was a miracle worker. He was the greatest moral teacher in history. He's a son of God. We're a whole lot of opinions about who is this person, Jesus. What I wanted to do is just pause on this for a moment and just consider from Scripture, and it was really hard to cut it down, right, about the Scriptures that show who Jesus is. The last four weeks, Garth's done the... Um, Isaiah 9, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the name's given to this chosen one, this one that's coming. If you look in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, talking about the eternal Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This eternal Word, God the Son, And in verse 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh became one of us. The Word was made flesh and became one of us. He dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible is clear that Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just the greatest teacher in history. He's not just an incredible miracle worker. He is God the Son, Become flesh for us. Become one of us." It's interesting in Mark 124, I might just read it. Mark 124. This is what the demons are saying about him when he casts out demons. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons know who he is. In John fourteen, um, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and Philip says, "Just show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us." Like let's just put this to rest show us the father let him appear and jesus says in summary he who has seen me has seen the father jesus acknowledges that for himself and if that isn't enough that's my final thing i had to say because the story of lazarus is my favorite account in all of the bible i just love it so i'm going to go to there for a minute in john chapter 10 three times in john chapter 10 the pharisees are confronting jesus and Jesus says three times, If you don't believe my words, believe on account of the works that you see. And they go to arrest him and he leaves. All God's plan. God the Father's plan. He goes away. Lazarus gets sick. Lazarus's two sisters send for him. Come and heal him. Jesus stays away. Lazarus dies. And then Jesus returns knowing that he's died. And he comes into this scene. Of doubt, and he comes into the scene of grief, and his detractors are there, and they're saying, You call yourself a prophet? Surely you would have known that your friend was sick, and he's been dead four days in an unair-conditioned tomb, and Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he backs it up by resurrecting him. Wow. Oh, take a chill pill, Nige. Hmm. I, do, I feel the material because I've been looking at it. And Sorry if I get a bit emotional at times. Go home and have a sleep, I think. Right. So that's, that's the first question. Who is this? And the answer from Scripture is really clear. This is God himself who's become one of us. Yeah, what what was his mission? More specifically, what was Jesus' intent as he entered Jerusalem? What's he doing on a donkey going into Jerusalem? To understand that, we have to go back in his ministry to an event called the Transfiguration. In the Transfiguration, Jesus went up on a mountain with Peter, James and John. And while he was at the top of this mountain, he was transfigured before them. He was changed into blinding light. And Moses and Elijah appeared before him. And we might just read it in, in Luke 9, if you want to follow. I haven't got it on the screen. I haven't got all the scriptures up on the screen. It'd be a PowerPoint nightmare trying to keep up with it. Uh, Luke 9, 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him. This is talking to Jesus up on the mountain, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure in brackets, death, spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Take it up further down. He goes down the mountain. He heals a dear boy who's possessed by an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, it says. And then in verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. People were picking up their jaws off the ground this Jesus who healed this boy with an unclean spirit and they're all freaking out at how amazing this Jesus is the things that he's doing the second half of verse 43 but while they were all marvelling at everything he was doing Jesus said to his disciples let these words sink into your ears the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men but they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. I think I understand why they didn't understand the saying. Because they're with Jesus. And it's like coming home. You're with this guy who knows you fully, who loves you, who has all authority over all things. And he's got some parable going on about being handed over to to men. I think I understand why they didn't get it. And it was hidden from them. His life. Surely this is going to go on. When I'm with Jesus, everything is right, and he's talking about being handed over to evil men. The question now is why? Why must he die? And I know you know this if you've been in churches for a while, but it's great to hear it again. I'm not sick of it, I've been looking at it for 18 months. I'm not sick of it because it's just fresh every time I look at it, and I want it to be fresh for you. I want you to hear the gospel again and enjoy the gospel message. So, just bask in it with me. Romans three twenty three says, "All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God." The glory of God, God in His perfection, the beauty of absolute holiness. Bible says all have sinned, all have turned away all of us have said to God one way or another I'll do it my way I'll do things that are not commanded and I won't do things that I should do I'll turn my back on all that is holy and perfect and true all have sinned it's not just theology, Nigel knows this for himself, all have sinned, fallen short of what God had Romans 6.23 says this at the beginning of it. The wages of sin is death. What does Nigel deserve from turning his back on the living God? Nigel deserves death. Eternal separation from all that is holy and righteous and good. That's what we get. That's what we deserve. That's God's just judgment on our rebellion. we've got this we've got this polarization we've got God living in unapproachable light and we've got stinky humanity broken, unable to make it right unable to get across that gulf to make it right with the holy God what can I offer a holy God to make it right when I've broken the commandment but we've got God who's compassionate how can it be fixed? How can we be brought back to God when we've done the wrong stuff? God can't just look the other way. That would be unrighteous. You imagine if there was a court, and and I'm a judge, and, and a guy comes to my court who's a drink driver, who's had an accident and has maimed somebody. And I'm out the front holding court, and I say to this fellow, God, oh, you seem like a nice guy. How about we just forget about it? Just go your way. That would be unrighteous not to justly condemn that action. How much more so with a holy and righteous God with our sin? He can't just corruptly look the other way, but He loves His creation. It's good to sit in that problem. God's righteousness, our brokenness, but God's compassion. Maybe there could be a substitute. Maybe someone could take a bullet for me. Maybe someone could be judged instead of me. Who would do that? Who would do that? Who would stand in place of my judgment that I justly deserve? Well, there's two conditions that I... I'm not, no theologian. There's two conditions that I think are key here that need to be met and only Jesus can meet them. The first one is that whoever stands in Nigel's place has to be a true representative. Whoever stands in our place has to be one of us. And here we have Jesus, legitimately the son of Mary, with the blood of Mary running in his veins, the son of man, fully human. He can be our representative. The second condition is that whoever is our representative has to be sinless. Because if they've sinned, then any death that they experience is only going to cover their own sin. They have to truly represent us, and they have to be sinless. Read the Gospels. Put your sunglasses on for the glare of his glory as you read the Gospel accounts of this wonderful Jesus. Jesus alone could take our place in judgment. Jesus' unjustified death can make right those who put their trust in him by dying he satisfied God's righteous judgment on my rebellion God did judge but he judged Jesus on the cross he sent his own son to die for you and me by dying he absorbed God's wrath against my sin God's wrath was satisfied in Jesus I know you know it, but isn't it great to hear it again? It feeds your soul with the goodness of God. I want to cut back to the text now. We're coming close to the end. Where are we? There we are. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There is an amazing irony in this passage, which I want you to see. The word Hosanna means, oh, save. That's what Hosanna means, oh, save. And you've got these people there wanting Jesus to show his strong arm and kick out the Romans and restore the physical kingdom of Israel, And they're screaming to Jesus, oh, save. And it's exactly what he's about to do by dying in our place. I looked up the word Hosanna in the Strong's exhaustive concordance and it said to free or succor, avenge, defend, deliver, rescue, save, get the victory. This is exactly what our Lord is doing as he comes into Jerusalem on that donkey. And the crowd expected him to show his strong arm against Rome. And he didn't do it. And the fickle crowd turned and said, crucify him. And in dying, he truly saves those who bend the knee. Isn't that marvellous? Isn't that a beautiful thing that our Lord has done? When a military leader takes over a city, they march in on their war horse, strained muscles holding on to the reins to take over a city that will eventually crumble. Here we have Jesus entering humbly on a donkey to defeat death, to defeat the hold of sin over your life what a sublime thing! I pray that this has a pastoral effect in your hearts, that it sinks down, that you, you know, during a week when you think about Jesus coming on that donkey, that you just reflect on that. Go, Man, what a wonderful thing my Lord has done. God's ways are so far above our ways. You think about Jesus coming in on the donkey surrounded by a fickle crowd that would change their minds about him. Think about Jesus coming in on a donkey to face a religious leadership which was hardened and scheming against him, that put him into the hands of a brutal Roman Empire, and God gets exactly what he wanted, exactly what he preordained from the beginning of creation. Ah, the the beauty of God's plan. I'm going to invite John to come back up and do a couple of songs. And I just want that as an opportunity for you guys just to worship and reflect upon what I've said. And then I'm going to come back and read a bit more scripture. Thanks, John. Thanks, guys.